One of the hardest things to prepare for is a proposal when the other person knows that it's coming. Joyce knew that a marriage proposal was coming even before it had happened because we'd already decided to get married. And so the proposal was purely ceremonial, but obviously something still important. My struggle was finding a way to make this expected proposal a surprise, which you can imagine, not an easy thing to do. Not exactly an easy thing to do, and so I needed to set the timing perfectly at a location that was both appropriate for the occasion without being too obvious. My plan required about three months of waiting, and during that time, all proposal talk on my end went silent. I didn't talk about it with her at all. And I waited. And sure enough, Joyce came to me and asked me what I wanted to do for my birthday. And so I set my plan into motion. She wanted to know what I would like to do for the occasion. And so I told her that I'd like to go to the Natural History Museum in L.A. And since she knows how much I love museums, she thought nothing of it as far as the location was concerned. And afterwards, we would go to a nice restaurant for dinner. My planned proposal involved two parts. One, being my birthday, that Joyce would never see the proposal coming on that day. And two, the museum being directly adjacent to my planned proposal location, a beautiful and uh, quite famous rose garden, that it wouldn't raise any suspicions when I would casually suggest that we walk through it. Another benefit of using my birthday as a cover for the proposal was that it explained why we were both dressed up for this occasion. I had the engagement ring and a plan ready. In life, there aren't many days that we remember vividly. I mean, if I asked you, How many days within your life do you actually remember the day vividly? Probably not a lot. But that special day, as if it happened yesterday, is vivid in my mind. So this is how my birthday and engagement day ended up being the same day. And as a side note, this is also why I will never forget the day that I proposed to my wife. Just a kind of two birds with one stone, or if you're Chuck Norris, two stones with one bird kind of situation. Anyways, time and place is the intersection for when and where important events happen. We remember when and where we were for really important life events. Isn't that true? For the truly important dates and events in your life, don't you remember where you were and when it was? And when we have the opportunity to prepare for those occasions in advance, then we choose both a time and location for the sake of sentiment and meaning. We want maximum memorableness. We want maximum meaning out of occasions that we can plan for. Thus, time and place are significant. We know this. We understand this. As we continue on in our journey through John's Gospel, in chapter 18, Jesus is at the threshold, the beginning of what he called the hour. 
the time when he would finally make his way to the cross. For this occasion, the time and place were set. The time was the Feast of Passover, commemorating God's destroying angel passing over the homes of Israel, which were marked by a lamb's blood, while death passed on to every firstborn in Egypt, every home, every Egyptian home, and passed judgment upon them, and not one was pardoned by blood. And ultimately, it was this work of God that set Israel free from the bondage of their slavery to Egypt. The timing of Passover is highly significant as the backdrop for what Jesus would do now, which is to break the bondage of sin and bring true freedom. We see the mirrored kind of theme as far as what Passover meant historically and what Passover would mean as a backdrop for what was happening now. So the time was set. But the place. What of the place? That's the question that I pose to each of you today. What is the significance of Jesus' arrest in the garden? We turn to our passage from John chapter 18, verses 1 through 12, as we look for the answer, if you'll all take a look with me. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. What is the significance of Jesus' arrest in the garden? The answer? It's in the garden that Jesus fully embraces the reason that he came into the world. That's what happens in the garden. It's not that Jesus wasn't embracing the reason that he came into the world before, but in the fullness of time, this is the time and place in which all of that comes together and Jesus embraces the reason that he came into the world. And we see this in the first three verses of our passage. The garden is a significant place in Scripture from the beginning. In Genesis, the garden represents the place of wholeness and harmony with God. The place where the fullness of life resonates throughout all of creation. It represents the place and state where everything is as it should be. 
That's what the garden represents. But as sin was brought into the garden through Adam, the world was corrupted by sin. Adam, whose name means man or mankind, brought death into the world and the fullness of life and creation was torn because the harmony that humanity shared with God was broken. And as a result, as death was brought into the world, humanity was kicked out of the garden. And from that point on, the garden represents the world and life that was lost. It's what was, but was no longer. And so, it's appropriate that Jesus, who is known in Scripture as the second Adam, whose favorite self-identifier is the Son of Man, would look to restore harmony, wholeness, and life by stepping back into a garden where the first man brought death, the perfect man would bring life and life eternal. And so it's no coincidence that Jesus chooses the garden to be the place in which the hour would begin. This was a divine appointment. And see who it is that's come out to take Jesus by force. It's, array, it's an array of representatives of the world. You have uh, soldiers who represent the Roman authority, servants of the, uh, of the Jewish authorities, and of course the representative of Satan himself, who Jesus referred to as the son of destruction in last week's passage. All of this comes together to, what, to represent what we would call the world. So Jesus has stepped into the garden, this place that has so much symbolism and meaning in Scripture, in the history of the world, and in stepping into the garden as the second Adam, the son of man, he is confronted by the world. We see here that the garden is, of course, the fitting place for God's will to be embraced. The second thing we see, we see that the plan and purposes of God are often hidden behind frightening circumstances. So it says that Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, you can render this is that knowing all that would be placed upon him, all of the weight of the world of sin, Knowing all of that, Jesus came forward and says to this band of people, soldiers, servants, and such, who have come to arrest him and take him by force, he asks them, who do you seek? And when they answer him, Jesus said to them, I am he. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They fall back. And then Jesus asks them again. And then says, I am he. So you can take me, but let these go, referring to his disciples. And this was to fulfill what Jesus had earlier spoken when he prayed unto the Father and he said, I have not lost one of these, not one of these, except for, of course, the son of destruction who was sent out into darkness, the betrayer. Here, Jesus is confronted by a situation that we look at the surface and it is not an optimistic scenario. In the middle of the night where it is dark, keep this in mind, this is not at a time and place when, you know, street lights abounded. The only lighting that is available that has been brought to the situation are the torches that this mob or this band have brought with them. 
torchlight is very like kind of moves. You, as you guys know, you've seen flames. Could you imagine the scenario? You have a bunch of soldiers who are armed to the teeth and they're coming in some number. And then there you have the disciples of Jesus and Jesus himself and they're a much smaller band, not armed in that way. In the middle of the night, that must have looked frightening. And their intentions are clear. What they came for, they're going to leave with. If you look at the scenario for each of the disciples and the way they perceive the situation, this is a scary, scary ordeal. Let me ask you, how many times in your life have you literally felt like your life was in danger? For these disciples, this is the kind of scenario they're faced with because that's exactly what's presented to them. For each of us, if we were confronted with a similar situation, would any of us feel courageous and brave? And in the fight or flight scenario, probably the latter would be the more appealing. When you don't have the weapons to kind of, and the numbers to match what's going on on the other side, you don't want to fight, you want to flight. This is not a situation that is favorable for them. I think in life, that's kind of how we look at difficult scenarios that cause us fear. Here in this situation, as the world looks like it is taking control of this whole environment, there is Jesus and he's looking like he's going to be taken by force and there's nothing that can, be, that can stop this from happening. It looks bad. And yet, if we were to go a level deeper than that, we would say, and we would see, God's will is being done in this scenario, right? But everything on the surface seems to indicate it's bad. It's scary. It is intimidating. It is anxiety-causing. So much so that we understand why the disciples probably missed it. What does God's plan and purposes look like in real life? We talk about God's plan and purposes a lot in church, yes? A lot. But what does that look like in real life? Because it's one thing to talk about God's plan and purposes on a theoretical level. But if we can't identify God's plan and purposes in the real world, in real life circumstances, then exactly how are we fulfilling God's plan and God's purposes? Right? We need to be able to identify it in the wild, in the real world, in order to really participate in that, I think, in a conscious way. Here, in this circumstance, as Jesus is about to be arrested, what do we find? Jesus asks, who are they looking for? Jesus tell them, tells them that it's him, and they all fall back. And it's notable that they all fall back. And then they come again and Jesus asks them again, who are you looking for? And then they answer and Jesus says, that's me, so now let these other men go. If you look at the action of the scenario, this is not one who has lost control of the situation. Jesus is not the victim. He is not the one who is being victimized by violence or the circumstances or the events. He is firmly in control. Even when he pronounces that I am he, creation falls back in the face of the reality of his presence. But if you don't really take a good look at the scenario, what you often find is all you see is the fear. All you see is the intimidation. See, 
God's plan and purposes are often hidden behind frightening circumstances. If you want to find God's plan and purposes occurring in the real world, you'll often see them occurring concurrently with things that cause us fear, cause us anxiety, cause us to want to shrink away. It's not surprising. If God's plan and purposes was always occurring in the midst of peace, confidence, and ease, who here would say that God, keeping God's plan and purposes was hard? We'd all be doing it and all saying, yes, so easy to do. Yes? The reason it's hard is because God's plan and purposes, if you think about it, rightfully occur in the middle of all of the things that cause us to fear, all of the darkness of this world. Of course that's when this would occur. But as human beings, we often shrink away because the fear causes us to look away. We don't want to look at it, and therefore we lose sight of God's plan and purposes because in looking away from the fear, we also don't see what God is doing. But Jesus does. Jesus looks straight on, and it's very clear in what Jesus is doing that he is in full control. As a member of Christ's church, to try to really fit within the plan and purposes of God, it's hard because it means looking for God's will in all of the places that most people would rather run away from and to have confidence in his provision, his sovereignty, when every other thing would normally tell people it's time to run. Or better yet, it's time to fight it your own way. So where you look for and you find your fear, that's probably where you will see a lot of God's plan and purposes for you in your life. The third thing we see here is Jesus is our example for embracing God's plan and purposes. If you look in verse 10 to 12, Simon Peter now draws out his sword in the midst of all of this action. Simon Peter often gets a bad rap, but if nothing else, I think we can say this is a guy who takes the action into his own hands. Now, he's often wrong. Most of the time he's wrong. But from a human standpoint, you could see where there is some kind of courageousness, if you will. Simon Peter draws out his sword, waves it in the darkness, cuts off the right ear of the high priest's servant, and Jesus does not respond the way that maybe other people would expect. Jesus doesn't say, that's right, you stand up for me. Pick up that sword and defend me. I mean, in scenarios where we were faced with like, you know, intimidating circumstances and fear and somebody else came next to us and started waving their sword in the darkness to try to protect us, would we not feel some sense of like, yes, protect me? No? I think we would. In the face of fear, it's good to have an ally. But Jesus' response is not the typical one. He tells Simon Peter, he tells him, Put your sword back into its sheath. And then the reason he gives for why Peter should do so is what is the most important thing. He tells Simon Peter, put it away. Shall I not drink from the cup that the Father has given me? That's the reason the Lord Jesus gives. Shall I not drink from the cup? What Simon Peter was doing in the moment was he was trying to, in a worldly way, protect Jesus, but was actually preventing God's will, 
God's plan and his purposes from occurring. From Jesus drinking the proverbial cup of God's will. But in almost any human circumstance, we'd be like, Peter, you did the right thing. You stuck up for Jesus. In the face of the fear, what did he do? He resorted to taking matters into his own hands the best way he thought. Because in the face of the fear, he wasn't seeing God's plan and purposes because he wasn't looking straight at it. He wasn't looking to Jesus. He was thinking, what can I do? Well, I'm going to do the only thing that comes natural. I'm going to pull out my sword. I'm going to react in much the same way that anybody else in this world would. Jesus says, put it away. Because Jesus intends to fulfill the plan and purposes of the Father. Verse 12 is important to this. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Verse 12 is significant. Because Jesus lets this happen. I want to say that again. Jesus lets this happen. He is not a passive victim. He is actively involved in the process. In what is going on. What is the cup that the church has been given by God to drink? As it relates to Jesus' cup, I think it's clear. Jesus' cup to drink was for him to willingly go to the cross in order to fulfill God's plan and purposes that the world would be reconciled to the Father and that in all of this, that God would be glorified. That the bondage of sin and death would be broken. That sin and death which was brought into the world in that original garden by the original man was now being broken by the true Adam. The perfect man. Jesus was fulfilling that purpose. That plan. That was his cup to drink. None of us have to face down a cup like that. Because we couldn't. We can't. Jesus' cup is uniquely his own. And we're so grateful for it. Amen? However, that doesn't mean that you and I as his church, members of his church, don't also have a cup. What is the cup that the church has been given by God to drink? If we look in the Gospel of John, what have we seen time and time again? What Jesus says about his church, especially his future disciples, is that his disciples would be one. If you look at what Jesus says will be the defining mark of distinction that the world will look at and know that Jesus was sent by the Father, and know that he is God and believe, it isn't actually all of the things that we often kind of try to hold on to as the markers. It's not theological excellence, though that doesn't hurt. It's not doctrinal fidelity and being dogmatic in them, though depending on what it is, sometimes there's room for that. It isn't about all of the attractive things that the world often gauges as being valuable. What is it? It's the oneness it's the oneness of Christ's church that is all under the umbrella of the love that we share with one another that reflects the love that God has always had within himself perfectly in function and in eternity, right? That's the cup. If we want to 
you know, really distinguish ourselves in this world and lead others to believe in Christ. It's not via program, via all the bells and whistles. If we want, as a local church, to really lead other people to see Jesus, the best thing we can do is be one, as Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are one. That doesn't make it easy by any stretch. Amen? How many of us have attempted at different times to try to do this and been discouraged? Doesn't the cup that we've been given as Christ church also sometimes feel heavy? Haven't we at times also wanted to shy away from drinking that cup because it doesn't always make us feel good and sometimes we feel like we're suffering as a result of it, really suffering because, shoot, life with people in general is hard. And that's even when they're with people that you feel like, you know, you sync up with great. Take a bunch of people who have nothing in common other than the blood of Christ and our faith in Him and we're called to oneness. If that at times doesn't feel like the impossible dream, what the heck does? Right? Let me ask you, are you one with others in your practice, not just in theory, as Jesus described, in what you do to really bolster the oneness of the church. I mean, there's so much to that. Everything from the practical, just being in the same place. That's hard to do in the world today because, you know what, the church almost is never all together in one place locally. Go to any church. One week from the next, it's like, like you'll see a bunch of people in and out. From that all the way to the deepest of sacrificing our pride, humbly serving one another, loving one another, never giving up on each other, bearing with each other, being vulnerable with each other, being accountable with each other and to each other, serving and loving each other in ways that sometimes make us feel like it's going to break us, but actually builds us. Are we doing that? That's what we've been called to. That's the cup that's been set before us. I find that what's so difficult for us is that in our world and culture today, in terms of what church culture is, is that it sometimes make it, makes it seem very preventative to drinking the cup that the Father has given us. Because isn't it kind of the culture today where oneness is more about affiliation than practice? I'm tempted to that. There are times I will confess to you that I just want to throw in the towel because I'm a little discouraged. I'm a little discouraged and I just say, you know what? Does anybody else care about this? Does anybody else want this kind of oneness? Or is it just me? And then I'm humbled in that because I realize what a prideful thing to say. Who are you that you would believe that you are so honorable to be the only one that wants that, to be the only one who wants to pursue that when there is an entire church, people, who love Jesus, who want the same, but we're just struggling to get there, even as I do. Amen? But that doesn't mean we need to be okay with just living as the church the way the world expects us to live. We need to be church as Christ has defined for us. 
when he went into that garden and the kind of example he showed by taking the cup that the Father had given him. It wasn't easy. But in the end, I have come to find that the truest blessings that God has for us often come by way of also experiencing some suffering and hardship. Being a parent is really hard. It's been one of the hardest things I have experienced in my life because I feel so ill-equipped for the task. And I feel constantly like I'm making mistakes. And I feel like all of my mistakes are being imprinted on this individual. It is a constant reminder to me of all of my struggles. And honestly, it's hard because raising kids is not easy. And so consequently, I found that there are people who don't want to have kids because it is a weighty responsibility. It's not convenient. And often it hurts. Not just physically, because my son hits me in the face every now and then, sometimes accidentally and sometimes on purpose. Sometimes there is literally physically a pain. But certainly it's emotionally painful. But I will always be an advocate for people having kids. You know why I'll always be an advocate for that? Because as hard as it is, and as much as I struggle with it, and as much as at times in my own sinfulness I go to myself, man, I don't know if this is worth it. In enduring through all of those hardships and allowing God to work within them and trusting in Him, I have come to see it's one of the most amazing things that I could possibly experience. It has stretched me beyond measure. It has made me a better person, a better, a better man, a better follower of Jesus. So I'll always advocate for it. But I think that's what this is like. Taking the cup of God that the Father gives us is going to be hard. It's going to be painful. But if we avoid the pain, the potential real suffering that comes with it for the sake of not having to endure it, then we miss out on all of the blessing, all of the joy, all of the surpassing greatness that God wants us to experience for fear of what we don't want to go through when God wants us to have so much more. So I hope that each of you will look to Jesus as the example for your own embracing of God's plan and purposes. So let me leave you with this thought. Jesus' victory in the garden brought humanity life where there was only death. And Jesus' embracing of the Father's plan and purposes for him is the example for our own embracing of God's plan and purposes for us as his church.